Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. We are covering May 2021. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month is a bit of a bumper episode. We're going to hurry through a few updates to try and keep it manageable. Um, you're going to be able to read about all the different stuff at the links we provide in the, in the blog post. So go there if you're um, wanting to drill into a bit more detail or fill in some of the um, gaps. We're going to start with a couple of rather concerning court cases involving massive Home Office delays. We're going to turn to immigration policy then. We're off to the upper tribunal to discuss a series of new decisions on family immigration and the conduct of immigration appeals. And then we are ending with a couple of quick coronavirus updates. If you want to claim CPD, that's Continuing Professional Development Points as a lawyer for reading the material, listening to the podcast, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk slash members, and you can sign up as a member there, and um, there's a quiz and things to, to, to help you show that you are indeed keeping yourself up to date. Right, CJ, over to you. Yes, thanks, Colin. We picked out a couple of cases to start off with that are kind of fact-sensitive, but the facts are really shocking. So uh, the first one, not perhaps legally that significant, but I thought these facts were appalling. It's, it's about a man originally from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo who was in immigration detention in the UK for about four years in total, of which the High Court has now decided that three and a half of those years was unlawful detention. He'd arrived in the UK as a child, spent some time in care, and he had a reasonably petty conviction for robbing mobile phones. I think the trial judge even described it as, as petty or, or not particularly serious. But the Home Office really took against him. It just comes through so strongly in this judgment and, and its dislike of, of him and his situation combined with, as you've said, delay and just general incompetence meant that he spent most of his early 20s falsely imprisoned by the state. And I just I just thought this should be a major scandal. Um, I don't think it is, but nevertheless, uh, that judgment is Louis versus the Home Office 2021-EWHC-288-QB. Yeah, we don't necessarily write up all unlawful detention cases because they're they're often a bit sort of fact specific. They're not necessarily sort of useful going forward. But I mean, th- you're absolutely right, CJ. This one really is a shocking case. And it's such a condemnation of home office conduct in other cases as well. I think that, you know, there are some wider lessons. He was particularly unfortunate. It's not really an adequate word, frankly, to describe what happened to him. But, um, you know, a lot of the things that we see in this case, we also see in other cases as well. It's just a lot of it was combined and he was treated you know, even worse than than a lot of other detainees. It, it makes pretty awful reading. I think um, I think there was a little bit of mainstream media coverage of it, which you don't normally get for these kinds of cases. Yeah, May Bullman did report in the Independent, uh, which which is great because, yeah, it, it is just uh, appalling. And, and uh, as you say, the, the fact is that there's no real guarantee that this won't happen again to someone. Uh, let's move on. There's another case involving delay, but this time, working to the benefit of the person concerned. This was an an Albanian chap who claimed asylum back around the turn of the century. He falsely claimed in that asylum application to be from Kosovo. He eventually became a British citizen and now leads a blameless life working for the council. But he felt guilty about his uh, deceit. And in 2009, he effectively came clean. And the Home Office, in response, said, right, we're going to deprive you of your British citizenship because it was obtained by fraud. Then nothing happened for nine years. Uh, he got on with his life and had a child and so on. And then the Home Office came back and said, oh, yeah, we're going to revive that uh, citizenship deprivation. 
uh, went to court and the Court of Appeal has now held that the quote-unquote inexplicable delay means that uh, this chap gets to keep his citizenship despite the fraud. So that is nice for him. But again, a terrible look for the officials involved, that case Lachi and Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2021 EWCA Civ 769. Yeah, it's, it's, it's again, it's an interesting case on its fact. It's not likely to be that helpful in that many other cases. Although, I don't know, having said that, I mean, the, the, the quite a few of these um, Albanian Kosovar ex-asylum cases that sort of making their way through the system. And it may be that with all the things that have been going on at the Home Office over the last few years with them messing up the way that they do citizen deprivation, essentially, um, the whole system um, of, of deprivation based on t- previous deceptions or being being held to be unlawful by the Supreme Court and and just sort of, yeah, there's, there's been a lot going on in this small team at the Home Office, basically. Um, maybe there are actually um, a few other cases like this where there's been substantial delays. To sort of finish off on this one, the uh, the what always comes to mind when I'm looking at facts like this, a sort of bad mistake in the past, living a blameless life is the mayor, mayor of Casterbridge. And it's not quite the facts of that. I mean, he's not, he's not the mayor, is he? But, you know, he's, he's living a useful life in the UK, contributing well. It's a, a, a terrible uh, sort of mistake. Well, they're not that terrible when he was much, much younger. And, you know, it's all coming back to haunt him now. And, and he risks losing absolutely everything. I feel like you should have introduced that Mayor of Casterbridge analogy with the spoiler warning, because I have not read it. I think it's by Thomas Hardy, is about as far as I can go with that. Yeah, it's one of his slightly, slightly less grim ones. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, it's quite, quite good reading for um, quite good preparation, I think, for working in immigration law, actually. <laughs> There you go. Literary recommendations as well as case law. Um, Let's go to immigration policy. There has been a new policy paper from the Home Office, the New Plan for Immigration, Legal Migration and Border Control Strategy Statement is its name, published on the 24th of May, and it basically explains what they've got planned for the immigration system over the next few years. So not everything in the document is new, but it's a a handy overview of what's in store uh, for those keen to keep tabs on what's coming down the track. The bits of most direct interest to lawyers, I think, are there's a new visa planned called Global Business Mobility, and that will replace several existing routes, including intercompany transfer, which is interesting slash annoying. And the statement also confirms there'll be a, a work visa where the person doesn't need to be sponsored. So like the old highly skilled migrants program, but not too much like the old highly skilled migrants program because the home office didn't like that and, and abolished it and thought that people were doing unskilled jobs. So exact details, perhaps they're still working out, but they have said it's due to open in spring 2022. And lots of other stuff in the document about e-visas and digital borders and operational stuff, which we won't really go into uh, unless, I don't know if there's anything that jumped out at you from it. Yeah, I, th- I was interested to see that the the sort of confirmation that they're planning on simplifying to some degree, at least, the um, family immigration settlement routes it's quite an ominous term simplification um but um you know they are pretty messy at the moment the evidential requirements are just totally impenetrable to an ordinary human and in fact quite a lot of lawyers um so i tentatively say that's welcome although changes don't tend to be for the best with with the home office i don't know um but before we leave that one I've, i've got some reader feedback to read out for you cj this is from um, Tony Smith, CBE, who is the former head of Border Force, um, he, he writes in and says, well, 
when I say writes in, he posted it on Twitter. But anyway, um, anyone calling digital borders electronic boogaloo clearly doesn't have the faintest idea about how modern day border security works or has no interest in having any border controls at all. Hashtag border force, hashtag innovation, hashtag security, hashtag technology. So I, I think that's probably not entirely approving. But but to be fair, and, and let's let's end on some more positive feedback. This was in response to um, Madeline Sumption, who's the um, sort of head honcho over at uh, Migration Observatory, who um, found your write-up. She says, much more entertaining read than the document itself, I'm happy to confirm. So, yeah. I'm glad I got a nice tweet as well as a, as a mean tweet. We should probably explain that the headline of the article is a new plan for immigration to electronic boogaloo, which is what he's referring to and had no intended meaning beyond being a sort of a pun, I guess, on a sequel. There's a movie called Electric Boogaloo. I'm not sure if anyone got it, but CJ, you you don't need to you don't need to explain your headlines. That's fine. Let's uh, also in the immigration policy type news. There's been a migration agreement signed between India and the UK. There was some advanced speculation that it would be significant for Indian students and lead to loads more student visas. Uh, it does nothing of the kind. Basically, there will be. Th- 3,000 youth mobility type visas for Indian graduates aged under 30 to work in the UK for up to two years and vice versa for Brits who want to work in India under similar rules. And also some new processes to make it easier to remove Indian overstayers from the UK and vice versa in principle. So not a massive deal in the grand scheme of things, but interesting enough, and maybe they'll build on that in future. Yeah, the, the it's not exactly, like you say, this, I think you say this in the, the write-up, it's not exactly youth mobility scheme. So um, there's an e- extra requirement to have to have a diploma or degree or the, a few other things like that. Um, I, I sort of sent you down the rabbit hole on this. I think it was maybe a bit of a red herring. I, I think that since Theresa May was Home Secretary, they've been kind of linking these kinds of deals to returns of people. I think there has been a kind of home office involvement in in foreign policy, if you like, or whatever, um, to try and sort of persuade recalcitrant um, states to take back their citizens and to kind of uh, verify that they are their citizens more more quickly. Um, but I think we couldn't really find anything, could we? Or you couldn't. I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't immediately uncover uh, previous kind of formal agreements to that effect, but pretty Patel is in Ghana, I think as we speak, talking to the Ghanaian government about that sort of thing, you know, we can do lovely things for you if you just uh, make it easier for us to, to send your citizen back, so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's new. I think that is a current, that, that's, that, that sort of approach dates back quite a few years now, but um, they're perhaps talking it up more than they did in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the quid pro quo is quite explicit, really, in this deal. You know, you, we'll give you some visas, you take back some of your uh, people. Just a quick note then that the policy on when asylum seekers can work in the UK has been updated in light of recent court decisions that we've discussed in previous episodes. The policy now says that caseworkers have some discretion to allow people to work outside the strict terms of the immigration rules, albeit only in exceptional circumstances. Uh, Let's look then at a couple of court cases, both of them involving a campaign group for EU citizens, the Three Million. They have been in the Court of Appeal arguing against the so-called immigration exemption in the Data Protection Act. So this is where the Home Office can basically refuse to give people, uh, give migrants access to their file if they consider it in the interests of immigration control. 
It's been controversial and this case succeeded in the Court of Appeal. It hadn't in the High Court and the judges said the immigration exemption is contrary to GDPR, the EU Data Protection Directive. It's still in force here post-Brexit. Colin, you might venture some speculation on the ramifications of that. Let me just give the case citation first. It's our open rights group and the three million versus Secretary of State for the Home Department and another 2021 EWCA Civ 800. Yeah, I think it's quite difficult to see what the what the ramifications are. Actually, it's kind of I, I get the feeling that the Home Office has probably introduced this exemption just because they they really don't like giving people their immigration records, um, not because they've got any particular justification for it. Um, they just don't think people should have them on some sort of principled level. Um, but you know, if you think about some of the difficulties that we've seen EU citizens having with proving their status, the idea that you know they 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 have problems with the Home Office and also they have no capacity to access their own records, uh, leaves them really stuck, basically. Um, so no, really pleased to see that this this litigation seems to have seems to have worked. I mean, who knows if it's going to go any further, I suppose. But you know, in principle, people should have access to their records. And I've I've acted in loads of cases. I've seen loads of other cases that other people have been doing where having access to those records was absolutely critical to sort of proving somebody's case, showing that they had a right to be here, um, or that they met the rules in some way. So so I think this is a really important victory. Yeah, it's not just a nice to have or out of interest that people request their file. It's it's really important to practice. The other case that the three million was involved with in recently was a challenge to EU citizens getting only a digital rather than a physical residence permit. They were arguing that the physical permit should be issued. Uh, that challenge was thrown out as premature, so maybe it'll be revived down the line if they can prove that people have been having serious trouble with these digital only permits. Uh, that was a high court case. 2021 EWHC 1159 admin. Let's look then at the latest batch of decisions reported by the Upper Tribunal. There is one to do with spouse visas and specifically the minimum income requirement. So the amount of money your sponsor has to be earning. Basically, this lady applied on the basis of her husband's employment income. Uh, The application was refused on some technical ground that's not relevant so they had to appeal and then by the time of the appeal hearing her husband had become self-employed rather than employed so the judge said well you succeed on your whatever you were appealing about the home officer was wrong to refuse to issue the visa but i can't actually allow your appeal because this change in circumstances in employment means that as of right now you no longer satisfy the minimum income rule and that then went to the upper tribunal and that has held that the judge uh, was wrong to approach it that way. And the key thing is whether the minimum income requirement was met at the date of application. Uh, so she gets her visa uh, three years later. <laughs> the case Begum Employment Income Rules Dash Article Eight Twenty Twenty One UK UT One One Five IAC. Yeah, um, when I read this, I, I struggled to see how it got as far as it did in a way because it, it the outcome seems sort of inevitable, and I'm surprised. Uh, shouldn't be perhaps, but surprised that the Home Office tried to argue this because, um, you know, the Home Office is very happy for the rules to be fixed on the date of application most of the time. But then for them to try and say that, oh, yeah, but actually in some circumstances like where we might refuse you, then it should be forward looking in some way. It just seems 
you know, really uh, hypocritical, nonsensical, uh, other such words. So, um, no, it, it, it's, um, you know, you, you, you have, it's, it's a well-established principle that you have to look at this as at the date of application. So it's surprised to see that it, that didn't happen in this case. There was another interesting case in the high court, also got some press coverage. This involved a lady who had lived in the UK as a child, but spent most of her adult life in Trinidad and Tobago. She was granted the right to live in the UK indefinitely under the Windrush scheme, uh, but she has a large family in Trinidad. And if they were all going to be reunited in the UK, uh, it would cost 23 grand. So she challenged the government's refusal to waive those fees for her family, uh, I think four children, the husband. And she argued that it was a breach of her human right to a family life. So Article 8 of the European Convention, and that it was also indirect discrimination against her family. So Article 14. And she won on both counts. So I guess all the family gets come for free now and possibly other Windrush families too with a questioning intonation maybe you can tell me. Uh, the question Mahabir and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2021 EWHC 117 sorry 1177 yeah not necessarily for free I think is the the rider to add to this so um, the, the fees were just completely unaffordable and that was um, that's what made them unlawful but if they were more moderate, then they wouldn't necessarily be unlawful. Um, so it's not it's not easy to see how this one's going to be implemented. But it, it's it is quite an important case, not least for illustrating that there are a lot of um, Commonwealth citizens who were refused entry um, back in the day by immigration officers who actually had a right of entry because they didn't have that evidence in their passports. And the, you know the, the completely unknown, unquantifiable number of people were treated that way, and just had to, you know, leave the country. As in, you know, get they got they went back to visit relatives in whatever country it was, and then they tried to come back to the UK, which was their home, and they were refused entry, and they just had to go back to whatever country it was and try and make a new life there as best as they could. And there, there must be thousands and thousands of people in that situation. Um, so it, it's nice to see one of them at least, you know getting entry and then also as far as we can see you know certainly getting reduced fees not quite sure what the actual outcome is going to be for this for this case but um, it looks good finally another case on family migration high court again it concerned a little boy with british citizenship and his south african mother who lives here on a parent visa and her visa or her permission to remain, I suppose, probably uh, initially allowed her to claim benefits because of the family's financial circumstances, I guess. But when she came to renew her permission, she got fed up trying to get a waiver of the fees and just paid the thousand pounds or whatever it costs to, to get an extension. So then the Home Office went, aha, you've clearly got some money, so we're issuing the extension without recourse to public funds, i.e. in future you can't claim benefits because clearly you don't need them. And this led to litigation and a finding that the bit of the immigration rules that uh, deals in Appendix FM that deals with no recourse for public funds for family migrants, that is unlawful because the wording doesn't have regard to the best interest of children as required by an act of parliament. That case is called ST a child, cited as 2021 EWHC1085 admin. Again, with that, will anything change specifically, concretely as a result? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the, the Home Office seems just so over-anxious to impose the, the no recourse to public funds condition, even in you know, really inappropriate cases where there's a there's a risk to children and so on. Um, 
you'd have thought that all these cases might have some sort of impact, but um, a person thinking that perhaps doesn't know the Home Office as, as well as we do, unfortunately. So I, I, I don't know, but it's a, it's a really positive decision in this case, and we can just hope that it will have some sort of wider impact. A few cases then on the conduct of immigration appeals. There is one about so-called out-of-country appeals where someone challenges their removal from the UK after it has taken place. And there are often questions about whether such appeals are fair. Lawyers will remember the Supreme Court case of Kyrie and Bindloss on the factors that go into that decision. And the Upper Tribunal has now said that an immigration judge who's hearing one of these out-of-country appeals can decide after the hearing whether the appeal was fair to the appellant, i.e. you sort of go through the whole process, see whether the person was able to get legal advice, take part over a video link, etc., and then make a call on whether this whole process is effective or not. You don't have to call it off before the hearing, although you can if necessary. So that's the case of Juba, Section 94B, Access to Lawyers, 2021 UKUT 95 IAC. Yeah, I'm pretty uncomfortable about this case, I have to say, um, because the idea that you can tell it's unfair at the hearing. I, I, I just, I'm struggling to sort of explain why, but it, in terms of sequencing, that just seems wrong to me because I think you, you're, you're likely to think it is fair if it's actually going on and sort of assume that they've had a proper chance to do stuff because you don't know the things that didn't happen and couldn't happen, I guess. So yeah, I, I, I'm pretty uncomfortable about this one, but um, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I guess it means that uh, representatives can, uh, you know, make a pitch at the end of the hearing to say, look, judge, this this hasn't been fair, as opposed to feeling that the point has passed by the time they sit down in the hearing centre, right? Yeah, in theory. But in the Home Office, just be able to say, well, you know, the hearing's done. Um, it, it can't be that unfair. You know, we we heard evidence. Um, so it, it's, it, I, I think it's going to be kind of a bit of a fair accompli kind of effect, basically. Yeah, yeah, fair. Well, speaking of out-of-country appeals, there is some chatter about the situation around this having changed in the few years since that Kyrie and Bindlas case. The Supreme Court said that, you know, some out-of-country appeals will be unfair, some won't, it all depends. But now we've got remote hearings over video link, pretty much a standard for pandemic-y reasons. People are quite used to that technology and so on. And certainly one judge, Mr. Justice Mostyn, has said that uh, this is a game changer. The technology has improved to the extent that the problems canvassed by the Supreme Court a few years ago will, quote, occur very rarely, end quote, and that appellants overseas will be able to get a fair hearing, quote unquote, in almost all cases. Uh, so that was a high court judgment, Armin and another 2021 EWHC 1217 admin. And those sentiments obviously don't affect the Supreme Court ruling in, in themselves. And Mostyn is a family court judge primarily, not to denigrate him, but he, I guess he's not an immigration specialist. So I presume this doesn't, have a direct, doesn't change the law or whatever, but maybe an indication of a shift in thinking uh, that may lead to a change in the law in these out-of-country appeals. Yeah, I, I, I think um, with respect, uh, Mr. Justice Mostyn just gets goes off on the wrong foot here completely in the first place because the, the technology hasn't improved at all since Gary and Bindloss. You know, Skype existed then. It's still the same as it was. It might be that Mr. Justice Mostyn hadn't used Skype before for doing a hearing, but the technology was there. It just hadn't been, it wasn't quite so familiar to judges, basically. And the same problems that existed at the time of Gary and Bindloss still exist today. Um, they're not really to do with technology as such. They're to do with 
the sort of infrastructure, whether you can actually get a good enough connection, whether you've actually got the um, you know the actual hardware to to effectively give evidence, you know, with a with a laptop or something that you can sort of um, sit in front of rather than sort of holding a phone in front of your face. And also with things like um, conducting um, interviews for for expert evidence and experts, sort of get, collating evidence and stuff. So, um, with with respect, I, I just you know, the, the, it's a myth the idea that the technology has improved. The technology was there; it's still the same as it was. Essentially, what's changed is judicial familiarity with it. Finally, then on appeals, just there's a note from the president of the Upper Tribunal who says that. When you have a cart judicial review, so when you're challenging a decision of the tribunal not to hear your appeal, you can't include arguments in that cart judicial review that were not part of your appeal grounds. So the legal team in this case seemed to have tried to introduce new arguments at the cart stage and actually got away with it in the uh, sort of outcome in their particular appeal. But uh, President Lane says, uh, okay, we're letting this go, but nobody should try it in future, essentially. So citation, Osafiso and another PTA decision effect, CART JR 2021 UKUT 116 IAC. Yeah, as I think you said, CJ, this is the um, tribunal saying, don't do this thing that worked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's uh, not exactly a dire warning, but however. Uh, Let's finish off just a couple of very quick coronavirus updates. First of all, the modified process for checking a migrant's right to work in the UK is coming to an end. There's a concession to make that kind of less hassle because of the pandemic, but employers now need to revert to the standards process, whether that's manually or online. Uh, as of the 21st of June, uh, the Home Office first said it was the 17th of May. There were complaints. So they've pushed it back to the 21st, although the 21st is the date that England is supposed to take the final step out of lockdown. So if that's, uh, so it, it may be tied to that. And if the unlocking date is pushed back, maybe the right to work concession will be extended further. But uh, for now, it's on the 21st of June in about a week's time. And another concession coming to an end, important for people working in the education sector, uh, international students, uh, new international students can be sponsored for distance learning during the pandemic. That concession is also ending the relevant date there, the 27th of September. So in terms of universities, immigration compliance duties, that's important. Uh, All this is in our big coronavirus update page, which we continue to update every few weeks at www.freemovement.org.uk forward slash coronavirus. Right. Thanks, CJ. That's it from us for this month. And I want to end with an apology to our listeners. I think I suggested that a red herring might be found down a rabbit hole. And um, I just feel really bad about saying that out loud. So sorry about that. And we'll be back, hopefully, with no mixed metaphors next month. Goodbye.